Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. So welcome listeners. Today we have Dr. Bree Robertori on our podcast. Dr. Bree Robertori is a clinical psychologist who specializes in family therapy, trauma-informed care, and multicultural practice. She has worked with children, families, and adults across the lifespan who have been impacted by psychological trauma related to domestic violence, child abuse, sexual abuse and assault, community violence, racial marginalization, and immigration ruptures. Bree, thank you so much for coming on today. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So Bree, I would love to hear what led you to this line of work. I think I, I chose to become a psychologist because it felt like a call to be with people in a more meaningful way. And I also saw it as an act of social justice because there were so many layers of work that were getting me further and further away from actually working with people. And I myself growing up, like we, we had some time where we couldn't afford receiving good health care. So it felt really important to be able to give back as as a provider to people who have less access to really quality care. So that felt personally meaningful to me. And then when I started at the Wright Institute, where there's not a lot of resources, there's oftentimes just complex stressors. And with those complex stressors come trauma and all these other things. I also speak Spanish. I'm not a native speaker, but there's a lot of Spanish speakers are not getting the services that they need. So I felt determined to be able to use that as well. Yeah. So I think just I wanted to be as close to the front lines as possible. And that's where I put myself as in community mental health. So right now, where are you working? What are you up to these days? Yeah, I just wanted to, I, I realized I put that I'm a clinical psychologist. Technically, I'm not a clinical psychologist yet until I'm licensed, which I will be hopefully soon, fingers crossed. When I pass my licensing exam in a couple months, I'm a professional psychologist. And I am working it through the Looking Glass, which is a community-based mental health organization that serves folks basically who have medical and where there's a person who has either a physical, intellectual, or developmental disability in the family. Mm -hmm. So I'm working exclusively with Spanish-speaking folks and families and kids. But before that, I've been at Kaiser. I worked at the County of Marin with the Latino Family Health Program. So I've been around just getting experience with kids and families everywhere. Thanks, Bree. That's so helpful to understand where you're coming from and your personal passion for this work. Can you tell us a little bit about how trauma might affect the patient and provider relationship? So this is part of where I would also take cues from you because I work in a pretty different realm. Like my job is to ask about somebody's trauma. That's definitely not your job. I'm sure you do ask, but I think my answer might be a little bit informed by learning about whether you had questions or if you want to just give me a little vignette and I could see from there, or I could just start talking and see what happens. I like you even differentiating that. Like my job is to ask about trauma. Your job is not to be doing like all of this is already great. It's funny too, like Monica and I, in preparation for this podcast, we had this discussion about how do we ask about trauma as PTs and should we be asking on the intake? And we had been reading all of these articles that you had sent over about how does a provider screen for trauma? How do they ask these questions and things like that? And we've been finding in our practice, we get somebody that comes in and they maybe are presenting in a way that seems like they may have had a traumatic experience. Maybe they're very uncomfortable talking about pelvic health. They're uncomfortable talking about urinary, bowel, bladder function, all of that stuff. And we just get this inkling that there might have been some sort of history there. We, In our training, we've often been instructed to ask them, is there any history of trauma or abuse that may affect your ability to participate in PT? And we're wondering now, gosh, that just feels so invasive, right? Like it feels like such an invasive question to be like, tell me about your trauma, even though maybe they're not really ready to go there with us. And they're just coming in to see us more from the physical side of things. 
And then also if they answer yes, like, what do we do with that? You know, like we, we don't have the training or the skills to manage those sorts of things. And so it feels kind of empty to be like, here's a referral to psychology. We can't talk about this anymore. So I, I would love to know if you were a PT, what's your opinion on screening? When do you screen? How do you ask the question? And then what do you do if someone answers in the affirmative? So glad we're talking about this. So I poked around, did some research, and best standards are to ask in all different medical settings, whether nursing or PT or gynecology. And my thought on this is asking is a really great way to get some of that information. But for someone who's experienced trauma, the hallmark of it is feeling a loss of control, feeling invaded, feeling like you have no autonomy, keeping that in mind, there are definitely ways to ask that are going to feel better for you and the person. So some of the things that I encountered were a screener. Actually, there are probably screeners out there. And when I say screener, I mean just if they fill it up with all their intake paperwork or it gets put on the original intake paperwork that you all have. That would be a conversation with management to include in the intake paperwork, generally speaking. But there's probably some sort of tested phrase that someone has standardized and done research on to ensure that it does exactly because we have, what, 10 words to ask about this on paper. So there, there is probably different ways to incorporate this in paperwork. So that's the first one is they're responding without having to look at you, which could feel more comfortable and mean that they feel a little bit safer to be like, okay, I don't feel like I'm being grilled. And the second point is in the room with the person. And I personally think that you could play with different ways that feel okay for you to ask. The question that you asked did, it, feel, it felt a little bit prescribed, you know? Um, and totally. Yeah. And I actually, it could be fun to just talk through what would you want to say, or I could, because I was thinking about this today, like if I were a PT, what might I say to, a, to someone who's coming in? How might I ask and how might I prepare them? So I want to yeah. know what you would say, like, tell me what to say, Brie. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> Actually, so Sammy, I think you gave me the standard phrase that they've given you. Monica, do you have the same canned phrasing that they suggest? I don't. I will get to the end of all my questions and say something along the lines of this type of work can bring up really uncomfortable feelings for people. And I want you to know that you only have to share with me whatever you're comfortable with. If there's anything that's really important for me to know as your provider, you can tell me that too. So I have that kind of soft intro and then I might say, is there anything else that I should know? But sometimes that doesn't necessarily feel to me like I'm asking about trauma. It's so open-ended. Is it really going to capture that type of experience? Because sometimes people don't link it, right? If you have a history of trauma, but you're coming in for urinary frequency, like how is that linked? I think we get it when it's, I was raped and I have sexual issues. Like those people usually put it together, but chronic pelvic pain shows up in people who have a history of trauma, whatever type of trauma it is. And maybe your pelvic pain isn't sexual specific. So I've honestly, over the years, I feel like I've tried a lot of different things. I had the canned phrase. I had the, have you ever experienced sexual trauma? And now I'm trying this softer language and part of me is toying with not asking and seeing if it's something that comes up, but like us trying to work more in a consensual, slow process, Mm -hmm. because I wonder, and now I'm getting off topic, but I'll just put this out there. I wrestle with, do I need to know about their trauma if I'm assessing for the things that would be successful in PT? Are they present? Can they live in their body? Is that a safe space for them? What does their nervous system need to reduce its pain? And I can probably help someone with that in my way without having to go into this more psychological trauma way. But that information on the flip side would also help me. But I feel like I've been caught sometimes where I ask and people tell me they have trauma. And then I think, oh my God, your treatment needs to be different. I don't know how, to be honest, you know, and then I've had those people who said, yes, they've had trauma, but actually in their course of care, they've done really well. I've had other Mm -hmm. people who say no history of trauma, 
And yet when I work with them, I'm like, oh my gosh, you could hardly be in your body. You're so overstimulated. Like we have to do all these grounding breathing practices. We have to go really slow. I have to really help build up your efficacy. And so to me, that reads more like a trauma response than this other person who said, yes, I, I know that I have experienced this type of abuse. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'm like, how helpful is this question? What do I do with it after I ask it? How does it change my practice? And how supportive is it? And I think it's a great research question. I think in the research as a group, it's really helpful. So I'm in a very strange middle land, Brie, and mm-hmm. any information you have or any thoughts would be really interesting as I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this. Yeah. I'm so glad for a lot of that context that you shared, because I think you're spot on. A lot of times someone who's had a trauma history might not even realize it was a trauma history, first of all. They'll just be like, this is my experience and this is what's normal. So I think attending to the experience of the person in the room and aiming for helping them be in their body and helping them be present and helping them develop awareness of themselves to down to every like little muscle. Yeah, that's my, that's how I, that's how I phrase what you do. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, proprioception, sure. Um, I, yeah, my, my thought there is you're right. And I'll just layer it and nuance it. I think a lot of times with trauma, there's this feeling that it can't be talked about and isn't accepted. So I think there's something really lovely in being able to hear the answer, yes, I have a trauma history, and be able to feel like the provider isn't too thrown by that, but that the provider can feel, okay, thank you for telling me. So within that, my thought in asking about trauma, like why talk about trauma if you're not going to do anything about it, especially if you're going to, you know, if it's blurry, a quote trauma presentation versus just maybe someone who who says they have no trauma, but feels like a trauma presentation. What you might want to get out of that is, do you think that what happened to you in the past is going to impact you today? And if so, how? Is there anything I can do as your provider to make you feel more comfortable? Because At the core of trauma is a feeling of loss of connection, is a feeling of loss of control, and is a feeling of fear or terror. So if we're addressing those things, there's antidotes to each of those. So feeling connected to a provider, feeling like you have autonomy and agency, feeling like you've been prepared to know what's coming your way so you're not so afraid, these things are the core principles in doing trauma-informed care. And I think really what the question is, do you have a trauma history? Is not, no, maybe it's not as much for you because you're both strong providers and, and you know how to read your patients and work with them and go slow and make sure you have consent. So those are things you're doing intuitively anyway that are, that are intuitively trauma-informed. But I think there's a way of outright saying to that person, I care about your experience and I want you to have a say in it. I want you to know that you can ask for something in this room. You can ask for me to be asking permission of you. Yeah. So does that kind of speak to some of this? Totally. The thing that we grapple with, right, is if you want to truly be a trauma-informed provider, shouldn't we be doing this with everybody? We should be always asking permission Mm -hmm. before touching. We should always be trying to involve the patient in their own care so that they feel like they have some agency. But I really like the point of if it's in the dark, it's bigger and it's scarier. And I think that's a really important point because it is a hard thing to talk about. And I think that if we can just normalize the conversation and not react to it or have any judgmental words associated with it, but just thank them for sharing and ask them what we can do to assist them. That feels very warm and supportive. Yeah. And I know, Sammy, you had actually said, how might you phrase it? And I didn't want to leave you hanging for too long. (laughs) Thank you. you. Thanks for remembering. (laughs) Do you want just, I could just stream of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get it. Okay. So I'll tackle it first in terms of how I think about it. And then I'll start as if the patient were in the room. What I want to do is I want to make sure that they know that I know this could be happening and I'm okay with knowing that I'm not scared by something 
that they're going to tell me that I can handle that. So that's one thing. I also want to basically communicate my comfort with it as a clinician provider. And then I also want to communicate, this is so normal. I know it's really not easy to talk about, but sadly, this is really common for men and women and folks on all sorts of gender spectrums. And someone who's trans might have had more experiences with this. So just attending to the prevalence of it and normalizing the fact that this happens and then containing the anxiety and the patient's anxiety around, can they handle this? And is it okay? Are they going to judge me for it? And then I would also say, ask the question, do you have trauma? With the goal of learning, do they think they have trauma? And do they feel comfortable with telling you about it? Because they might not. They might not, and that's okay. Or they might not even identify as having had trauma when they have, which is fine too. And then I think ultimately communicating to them, great, very courageous that you shared this. And thank you so much for being willing to bring that into the room. And then also after that, communicating in addition to gratitude and acknowledgement of their strength, that you care about their experience or that I care about their experience and that I'm going to try and do things to help them feel, and this is back to it, connected feelings of autonomy and ways of kind of moderating or down-regulating fear. So then what can I do as a provider to help you? And what might you need so I can make sure your needs are met? So then with that said, I would probably say something like, you know, this is something I ask everybody. And it's not the most comfortable question. And you know what? That's okay with me because I feel like it's a really important one to ask everybody. It's unfortunately all too common for people to experience unwanted sexual experiences. And I like to ask my patients if this has been part of their experience. And if so, I do this because I want to build a strong collaborative partnership with each of my patients. So I can just ask, have you had any unwanted sexual experience? And see what they say. And then say, thanks for sharing, or I appreciate your answer. That's very courageous. What? Obviously, you don't have to know the answer to this, but just given what you said, is there anything that you might want me to know around that so that I can be as attentive to you as possible and I can make your experience as comfortable as possible and make sure you feel like you're in the driver's seat as much as possible? And if the person's like, ah, 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 because I think that could be a common response. Totally. <laughs> also having a menu of options can also feel very nice because as a provider, you have a lot of power and it's nice to let someone know that you know how much power you have and that you're attentive to how that power impacts them. So saying sometimes people like to come in with another person. Sometimes it can be scary to be touched by someone who's a stranger. So what I will do is I will prepare you at every moment so that you know exactly what we're doing and why and nothing comes as a surprise. And that you feel like you, you have been able to have consent over each of the things that happen. Whatever those things are that you already are doing, both of you, letting them know where you're headed. I think there can be a lot of anxiety around this. And a great way to contain anxiety is to help someone know where they're going each step of the way and let them have a map. I might be touching parts of your body that don't even feel related. We might be working on your lower back or something like that. So just letting them know that there will be touch involved, that you'll ask, that you'll stop and check in, that you might want to practice some breathing exercises if it gets too scary, but you'll be listening to them, letting them know you'll be listening to them. I think that's great. And I wonder if it's important to limit this to sexual trauma or to ask about all types of trauma. In your wording, you said, have you had any unwanted sexual experiences? And what about the physical or the emotional abuse? And is there a way to try to encompass all of that? Yeah, thank you for asking. You're so on the right track because one person might have had an unconsensual sexual experience once and it's not really going to impact them in the room. And they would then report that and it wouldn't be as meaningful as a person who maybe grew up in a home where they witnessed violence or were subject to violence and their body's been rewired because of that. I would probably include it in a separate question. So ask about unwanted sexual experiences, but then say, is there also anything in your personal history? So the way that I actually personally ask about trauma, because people don't always attached to the word trauma, like they don't connect to it. They're like, that's not me, especially if they've never been treated for it. You might want to ask something like, do you have any experiences in your history, feeling really afraid or out of control, or perhaps had fear for your life or the safety of yourself or others, that might impact how we're in the room today. That might impact 
how you're in your body today with me. And those that's obviously like really long-winded. Maybe I would throw a quick Google search if I were you, like how to ask about trauma because I, and you'll probably come up with different phrases because people don't always respond to trauma, just like someone might not respond to rape, even if they have been by definition, quote, rape. I wonder about like big T versus little t trauma, which is a phrase I've heard. And so some people will say, no, I've never been raped, assaulted. I never saw anyone get beaten in my family. And I don't know if we can capture all the nuances of that. I'm not sure if we're trying to, but that's another thing that I think of is big T versus little t. How do those chronic experience of like racism, how does that affect you even though you've never perhaps had one big defining moment, but you've been subject to microaggressions or even medical trauma. I guess with that type of open-ended question, feeling out of control and scared and fearful, that could definitely bring up medical uh, procedures, which many of my patients have disclosed that they do terrible with needles and blood work and, and anything that is invasive to their bodies. Yeah, I think it's so great that we're talking about the impact of trauma related to racism or probably marginalization and and also medical trauma. We think these are fairly common, sadly, but I think also just being able to attend to and name as providers, like, hey, I know that this could impact us here. And I want to just hold that gently as we're in the room so that I can make sure I'm listening to you so that you're getting what you need. And I think just knowing it within yourself that perhaps if someone's disclosed this to you, you know, like, yeah, I don't really like working with white providers or I haven't had the best experience with white providers. And that tells you um, that they haven't had great experiences with white providers and, and that there's ways that we can hold gently that the relationship might feel a little more distant or there might be more hesitancy. I, I identify as white. So I might say, you know, I, um, well, it, it depends because sometimes talking about race right off the bat might feel really invasive because of the power differential, like saying, I'm white. I know that you're X, Y, Z race. Like it could feel too weird to, okay, I came in here because I have to pee a lot, not because we were going to talk about race. But I think also knowing that these things might be impacting someone or just having a, a question of might this be impacting someone and being aware that the answer might be yes. And also being aware that the answer might be no. There's a lot of resilience in communities of color too. So just to think a little bit of, about how that might come in. But yeah, I do think that there's a lot to be said for when people disclose all sorts of traumas from even just having a really volatile caregiver who maybe never hurt them, but was really not very present for them. That can lead to a lot of anxiety too. And Monica, you were saying earlier, someone might say, nope, no trauma history. And then they present as if they did versus someone who says, yeah, I've got a trauma history. And then they don't present the way you might expect them to. I do think that there's a lot around anxiety there, anxiety and the ability to live in one's body that could have to do with small micro traumas along the way, or just dispositionally, like I'm a more anxious person and I, I inherited that. <laughs> um, and that's okay too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like that helps a lot. Just understanding the importance of asking and then the importance of being aware of the the breadth of different experiences that patients might bring to the table. And one of the areas that we really want to explore in this podcast as well is the interplay that has with you as a provider and your experiences, your trauma, your own vicarious trauma that you might carry from patients. And I'm curious to delve a little bit more into that with you today, if you're up for it. Yes, that sounds great. So I, I've i had my own experiences personally with, I, I had a patient, I remember quite clearly from my residency last year that I didn't realize what was happening at the time, but this person, I, I dreaded the appointments. It was a very intense case of sexual trauma, and this person just had the most extreme trauma presentation that you can imagine. And I felt in some ways that I was very alone in it because they were already working with a lot of other providers, but we weren't communicating. So they had psychiatrists and they had psychologists and nobody was really helping me navigate what was going on with this person. I didn't really know what their triggers were. I didn't really know a lot of this background. And so I would leave the appointments crying. I'd hang up the phone because we were doing online appointments at that time. And I would leave the appointment upset. It's 
interesting to see how much you can really be affected by your patient's stories. And it was just such a hard thing to manage. I didn't feel like there was a lot of stuff built into the system to help me as a provider deal with that. Yeah. So I'm really glad we're talking about this too, because I think this is part of the reason why I've been drawn to trauma-informed care. And I personally have my own experiences of having experienced vicarious trauma. I was in my second year and I didn't really have a great environment to metabolize what was going on. And I remember just crying saying, I'm not meant for this field. I chose the wrong field and believing at my very core that I was not meant to do this because I'd taken in so much of what was not mine. So I think this is something that we should take really seriously and continue talking about. In terms of vicarious trauma and and holding people's experiences, I think it's really hard to give one kind of prescription for how to avoid vicarious trauma because so much of it is, you know, just like in the treatment of someone who has more complex needs is a really complex treatment response that's coordinated. There's a lot of things that are required to actually provide a workspace where clinicians or providers can have space to metabolize these experiences and contain them. So I know more about this from the perspective of how just working in mental health service providing systems, where I think, thankfully, we're gaining a lot more awareness around the fact that if you are a psychological trauma clinic, you should probably be thinking about vicarious trauma. But I think there's a few different things that I would touch on in that, which is ensuring that the management knows that this is something that happens. And it's not just happening to you, it's happening to probably all of the providers because we know that exposure to multiple traumatic stressors during childhood, people are going to end up downstream in their later years in lots of different offices of medical providers because there's a lot of health sequelae that come from that. So... Yeah, just having supervisors and clinic staff who know about these things so that if it comes up, it's just part of the experience of being a treating provider rather than, oh, Sammy can't handle this difficult patient because that in and of itself is something like a trauma response. This kind of rejecting, blaming sort of stance is not one of openness, safety, and care. And sometimes when there's, and this is a little bit of an aside, but just to provide a little bit of context, trauma, especially if you're like at a, I don't know, a VA or a low cost clinic, and there's a lot of people with a lot of trauma in there, the trauma can ripple up into the system. And then you're going to start to see providers numbing out or really unsupportive supervision that feels blaming and shaming or perpetuations of these same dynamics within the system of the disorganization and shattering of communication between all these different providers. Sadly, that kind of comes with the territory of trauma. And when we start to name and label and be able to identify these things, aka knowing what vicarious trauma is, being able to identify it, being able to put it into words so that, oh, it's not just me feeling like I'm a bad provider because I don't want to see this patient and I don't like them. Being able to get a little bit of space from the experience enables us to metabolize it as clinicians. And having that space, yeah, having that space has a lot to do with what kind of support we get from direct supervisors, what kind of support we get from the system around us and how it holds us, right down to the person who's scheduling appointments for us, as well as the things we do personally. I personally, as a therapist, I recommend therapy to everyone, so don't take offense, but I really do think Um, so, you know, but I think that one of the, like a really great place to work through some of these things is in a therapy office, which is sad because that means you have to pay for something that's happening at your workplace. And and I think there are problems with that inherently, but I do think we need to have space where we can slow down as providers and start to realize what is happening here. How much of this is me and how much of this is another person? And I think just knowing about vicarious trauma as a provider and knowing the signs of it, maybe it's not to the level of full-on traumatization, but knowing that you're working with someone who has experienced trauma because of the responses it pulls from you. So just to talk a tiny bit about this, people who've experienced trauma, often we use the, the phrase pull for in, in therapy or psychology, basically meaning that people are going to pull for very particular responses from all the providers they work with. So chances are the doctors on that case were also having that feeling with that patient and the 
the PT who was working with her for her knee was having that experience, or the, the nurse who checked her in had that experience. So realizing that working with folks who have trauma are going to provoke particular feelings. And when you start to experience those feelings as a PT going, oh, I'm feeling guilty or ashamed or full of rage at this person or incredibly sorry for them and I want to save them. These can be some of these experiences that that start to flag, oh, we're in trauma realm. These kind of emotions of anxiety, overwhelm, hopelessness, helplessness, fury, hurt, shame, guilt, or I'm not good enough. All these things that can come up when we're in a room with someone who has trauma that we're soaking up from them that aren't ours. So being able to label that and have that experience is really helpful. I I feel from a provider perspective, like we have this savior complex, right? Mm -hmm. And we feel like we have to do it alone. And it's funny that you're talking about this and what I'm hearing echoing throughout the entire statement that you just made was you need to make your own web of support. You need to make sure your supervisors are on board with what's going on. You need to make sure that you have your own support in maybe a psychologist that you're seeing. And we're so bad at doing that for ourselves in some ways as providers. And with my own experiences of this vicarious trauma, my supervisors weren't aware of what was going on. But once I finally brought it forward, they were quite supportive. I think it was more of an issue of ignorance than anything. Like they just didn't know. And on a pelvic floor side note, and I think Monica would probably sympathize with this, we are often working in environments where we're working directly under maybe a general orthopedic clinic. And we tend to elicit a different level of traumatic response when we are touching somebody's genitals than when we're working on their knee. It's just in the nature of the job. We're talking about much more intimate things. We're triggering people in different ways. And so oftentimes your supervisors have no idea what goes on in our sessions and they are sometimes quite shocked about it. And so I felt like when I finally looped my supervisor in on this really difficult patient that I was working with, they wanted to help and they were just floored by what was going on. That's a disconnect that I would encourage pelvic floor therapists to reach out to their supervisors about. When I started this brand new job that I'm at recently, I I talked frankly with my supervisors about what happens if a patient freaks out in the room? What is our procedure for that? I wanted to have that support ahead of time and let them know some of the things that could happen so that I didn't feel like I was just left on my own if something were to go on. That's something from my own experience that I would encourage anyone listening to do. And going off of that, first off, that's yes to everything. Sammy said hard yes. Never have I ever started a job that was like, you may experience trauma as part of this. And if that were to happen, here is our policy and procedure. And and I know I'm an idealist, right? I know I'm an optimistic idealist who would hope that one day we're having this conversation everywhere in healthcare. So Brie, I am so curious. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. I've seen that patient you just described, right? I am feeling all the feels. I know I'm discombobulated. For me, it's even physical. I can't Mm -hmm. even be near my computer anymore. When I do virtual care, I'm like, I need to get out of here. Like, ugh, right? Insert whatever it is. So what would be like a support from management what would you recommend? And I'll give you some context. My ideas are like, should we reschedule the next patient or two? Because usually we're back to back. Mm -hmm. And so I know from my own history, when I get triggered by this trauma response, and now I'm having all my feels, I'm trying to process them in maybe two minutes, if that, because I have to walk this person out, get them scheduled, come back to my office, clean my office off, try to document something, but my brain's not working. So what am I really writing in there? And then ding, your 915 has arrived (laughs) and you're like, okay, let me just kind of stuff this down maybe deal with it later and then try to get this next person. And if you could speak to how that affects people from your understanding, I could speak to how I think it has affected me and my poor client who had to follow that person. (laughs) Because I honestly (laughs) want to apologize to a lot of people. Like I now come in defensive and activated and I'm overcompensating for whatever I felt. So if I felt anger, I'm trying to be 
kind, but not really because I'm fuming underneath. <laughs> and if I felt not enough, then I'm really going to get this next person. I'm really going to get it. Or I just want to tune out and I'm like, I don't have any emotional bandwidth right. for you in your experience. And that's so unfair. You're coming in and maybe something very real and maybe not even traumatic happens for you, but I need to be sensitive to that person. And in my experience, when I'm triggered, I lose that sensitivity mm -hmm. and I'm a bit more, I want to say bulldozer. Mm -hmm. Like I either am hypersensitive and I think everything they say is like, <gasps> you know, or I'm just kind of missing the, maybe the underlying thing. Whereas usually I could read between the lines mm -hmm. or I could infer you're asking about this because mm -hmm. you mean that. Instead, I'm just like, okay, yes, I will tell you 75 ways to exercise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not read the, the anxiety. So yeah. very long way of saying what happens when you know you're triggered? What would be supportive to pelvic PTs? I honestly think we don't know how to do this. And the people that I talk to have that moment, treat the next eight patients, come home at the end of the day, but their notes aren't done. So they're behind. So then your next day is already starting off bad. They feel like crap. They're taking it out on themselves or, or others around them. And it doesn't have to be a full trauma response. I love that you say that. <laughs> so what would help us? And <laughs> just, to, just to ask yeah. you to solve the issue. <laughs> um, no, I think... Personally, I think there needs to be some sort of systemic change. It's extremely unreasonable to expect that this is going to go well when you've had to metabolize somebody's trauma response and have two minutes to prepare and are in back-to-back -back sessions for the rest of the day. It's inappropriate, in my opinion. I think it's unjust also. And it kind of leverages the wanting to help people trait that we all have, which ultimately is the reason why we burn out because we care is what ends up being what hurts. And I think that systemic change is probably the best. Identify what power you have in your clinic to say, I'm sorry, but I heard from a psychologist, whatever you need to say, <laughs> that um that this particular area of PT, pelvic floor PT, we're going to be eliciting the most traumatic reactions or triggered reactions from patients. And that if you want a, your pelvic PTs to be staying and to be healthy and to be providing quality care, probably that's the best way to say, do you want me to provide quality care or not? And uh, yeah, that's not really a nice thing to say, but how to frame a conversation so that you can get extra time so you can have that half hour so that you can close the door. I actually, I have been known to interpretive dance these reactions out. I remember one year I was like under a coffee table, pushing up on the coffee table. Like, and that's not something that we tend to share with our supervisors. That's something, not something we do professionally in a public space. But I think when you said you don't know how to metabolize these things, or you don't know what to do, I think you do actually. I think there's just no space for you to have those responses to take care of yourself. So whatever your body and your mind is asking for, like you said, like I can't be near a computer. Darn right. You shouldn't be near that computer right now. You need some space, like maybe a free write. Maybe sometimes I'm just like, I'll just see what happens if I vent at the wall and no one's there. I'm whispering, maybe loudly, but get some of those feelings out so they're not inside of you festering, mm -hmm. um, not inside of you festering and undermining not just your personal health and your psychic health and your health outside of your workplace and inside of your workplace, but the health of how you get to interact and be with the next few people who come. So my thought is talk about what are reasonable expectations. Be open with supervisors. And even if it needs to be elevated to, to clinic supervisors or, or directors, that this is a part of the field, not just something that's with you, because so much of these trauma-related sort of feelings or, or responses that ripple up into systems can be ones of blame and shame, but like this kind of undoing that parallel by being able to name that parallel process by being able to name, this is a part of pelvic floor PT. And this is something we need to be working into how we do this work as a clinic. And who can I talk to so that I can provide quality care to my next patient? Sometimes these trauma responses, I have taken up sprinting down the road. That's one of my things. 
I even, because I, I used to go to clients' houses and meet people in, in the field, and I had a portable sand tray, and I would actually do sand tray therapy, like moving toys around to see what was really inside, because I couldn't even put it to words. So uh, shoot, if you need to play with toys and have one toy beat the other, and obviously I'm a child therapist, but like, I'm, I'm serious. We, we need to pull onto every single way that we can articulate and metabolize these experiences and not just alone, but in the company of others, which is sharing this with with our supervisors and directors and making sure that we have advocates internally, because we can't just expect to do this alone. In fact, expecting that it's just something we need to take care of alone, get our therapist and do our work alone is, I think, a, a further perpetuation of this kind of trauma organized system where trauma is rippling up into the system because you shouldn't be alone. Neither should that person when the bad thing happened to them or those many bad things happened to them. So we want to just identify in order to get ahead of this, we need to be in community and be able to be talking about these things because you can't hold it alone and you shouldn't hold it alone. Totally. I Gosh, if this were Brene Brown, I would just ask you to repeat <laughs> so many things you just said, and, and I will do my best to repeat them because I hope that they're heard and I hope that I can really remember them. One, there's nothing wrong with you for feeling this way Absolutely with people. Right. And I think there's a lot of it, my experience has been like on you. If you had done more of your own inner work, you wouldn't be triggered by this. And that's not a fair expectation I'm hearing. That's not a fair expectation of ourselves or of the people that we have working for us. Yeah, yeah that's like victim blaming. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't have worn that top. If you were just emotionally stronger, you wouldn't be triggered by trauma. And then mm-hmm. it's like, okay, damn, let me go get some more therapy. Like, no, it's definitely- <laughs> how much therapy can I get? <laughs> like, well, what if I'm still being no, let me actually just kind of like a little reality check here and not just for you but for everybody around you in these systems vicarious trauma the definition of it is that we are impacted by our clients or our patients and the things that they've gone through the pain that they've gone to because we care it's because we care that we get vicariously traumatized not because we don't or we're not good enough quote quote <laughs> right there end episode just kidding yeah, that, was, that is so monumental yep it's so important you know. to remember I think that it's so easy in our field to just with our training we get trained to help 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 this is what you need to do for x thing and I think in, in physical therapy especially we often get trained in this very biomechanical kind of way looking at the human body as a set of parts to be fixed And that's not real life. We get into the room with an actual human person who has thoughts and emotions and trauma and all of these things. And then we're shocked that this approach doesn't work. It's so unrealistic and it's so toxic in a lot of ways because then we feel like we have failed if we can't just manage this person, fix their problem, and not be affected emotionally by it. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous expectation. And, and it's starting to change too. It is. I, I definitely think that is really pervasive, but we are also really starting to embrace more of the biopsychosocial approach. I would just say in PT, we're also at an infancy of understanding it. One of my mentors is a psychologist and he's always talking about how psychologists have access to other groups of psychologists that they can just go process what happened in therapy. And I was like, shut the front door. Y'all just get together (laughs) and talk about how much it sucks to treat someone, but with therapeutic intention. And there is even some benefit to just venting. But sometimes if you're venting and the person next to you is also venting, now you're both just like trading trauma stories, which could be even more traumatic. I've certainly had that experience where I thought I was sharing And then this person was like, oh, hey, now let me share my unmetabolized, I love that word, my unmetabolized trauma with you. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. I'm not ready for that. Don't. (laughs) And then I leave it. I'm like, wow, I feel even worse after having just told you that. (laughs) And I think it's important to ask, do you have the space for this when we share with people and, and we want that or something really hard at work happened today? Are you available for that? Which 
sounded like a really weird question, but I have a few friends I do that with and it it is helpful because when they're available, it's way different Mm -hmm. than when I just like blast into it. And when they're not available, we just pick something that feels better for both of us. Okay. We're just going to talk about random other things. I think when I said you do know how to take care of yourself, there's just not a lot of space in the system for it. I think that's a perfect example of seeking out people to process this with, asking consent to process it with them and creating a very intentional space around it so that you can actually be present with what's really there for you and be able to say, I just felt hate or I just felt terror. I just felt like I'm a terrible person. Being able to say those things are so meaningful because then you're no longer holding them inside of yourself, pushing them out of your experience and pretending like they're not there where they turn toxic inside of you. Right. Yeah. Wow. And in our community, it's a growing area. Pelvic floor PT, it's a newer branch of physical therapy. And I think that we're often siloed. Like I I know that I am in some ways at work and I'm the only pelvic floor therapist on staff where I work. And I, I work with some wonderful people. I'm very grateful that I have the colleagues that I do, but they just have a different type of job, you know, and they, they talk to people about different things. And so sometimes I have these stories that I'm I'm shoving down. And I think it's so important to create that community. Even something like this is kind of my outlet. Having a space to talk about it in some way is so important. And I think that's part of the reason Monica and I wanted to start this podcast in the first place, because there's so many professional development communities out there, how to treat pelvic pain better, how to treat interstitial cystitis, how to treat blah, blah, blah. But nothing about what happens when you go home and cry because somebody told you something that you can't process. Like, or that you are processing. Yeah. To your point, crying is processing. True. Yeah. But the interpretation is that because I cried, I did something wrong, which mm-hmm. has many layers as to why you might feel that way. Yeah. True. Right. I know. But- and I'm carrying that with me too. You have that I emotional know. response and yeah. I shouldn't be having this, right? It's, we fight it. We fight it. Yeah, or because I cried, I did something right. Yeah. Because I let myself feel and I let myself heal, I did something right. It's even a, an active, I don't know, like reclaiming what it is to be yeah. a strong person is to be able to feel and to be able to share it. Because I think societally, we don't this is not just something that's happening in the medical field. It's society. So shh, 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 we don't talk about feelings. Like we're not allowed to have those. Those are for the week. It's like, actually, just to let you all know, letting yourself have feelings is one of the most courageous things you can do, especially when you're met with all this social pressure not to. It even makes it more courageous. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brene <laughs> Brown talks about it and about how it could be really hard to have certain conversations. She was referencing, I think, like firing people. Okay, so when you fire someone, it never feels any better. And and now in her interview with Dolly Parton, they were saying that's actually great. That actually shows they still have their humanity. Yeah. And so it's going to feel crappy every time. And I'm trying, I guess I haven't thought of it this way, but now I see it like to have feelings in response to your patient kind of means you still care right. rather than being, I can think of one mentor I had, not mentor, not mentor, of um, one instructor I had who would literally sit on Pinterest while I was treating people. She's like, I am now going to plan my vacation while you do this thing. And I was like, this is the worst. This person, I and I couldn't even understand my experience to her at the time. So I'm processing a little bit here. But now I'm like, you are so disconnected from everything you were doing. And, and the way I perceived it was like, how could you sit here planning your vacation when I have no idea what I'm doing out here. This is like my first clinical. I have no idea, you know, and, and that type of disconnect. I don't want to be that type of provider. I don't want to just prescribe a formula and leave someone and be like, oh, the formula didn't work on you. Like you're SOL. You're you're hard to treat. Okay. Bye. But to be that vulnerable provider means that I will have to feel these feelings. They will come up for me. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad provider. No, in fact, it it means that you are still deeply engaged and deeply caring and pushing yourself to be able to confront some of the difficult things that come up. 
And to talk a little bit about like vicarious trauma reactions, honestly, they start to blur into burnout. And there's some sort of like triple Venn diagram with burnout, vicarious trauma, and moral injury. If you start poking around, we could have a whole nother conversation around moral injury, which is what yes. happens when healthcare providers are asked to do all these things that we're talking about to hold all this pain. And it's not recognized and it's just supposed to be like, fix them or it's your fault and you can't feel and you can't do the job you want to do because there's no space for you to do it. Yeah, I think in terms of these vicarious trauma responses or these burnout responses, they're like, yeah, numbing. That's what happens when someone is not letting themselves feel. So she couldn't feel a little bit of caregiving instinct to help you or a little bit of joy in watching you care for this person. The being cut off from all of those feelings is a response to there's so many layers as we start to dig because that's maybe just end stage of vicarious trauma or end stage burnout, which is, I think, a symptom of a systemic problem where you have to go in to see that patient two minutes after, and then you have to see seven more after that, these systemic issues that we're up against. Yeah. And part of the reason I, I find feeling upset and wanting to cry after seeing a patient is so problematic to me is because it throws a wrench in my day. Mm -hmm. I, I see in the system that we're in, I'm expected to go on to the next person like nothing happened and be functioning. And so in that context, having that emotional response is a huge inconvenience. And so I've interpreted that as I shouldn't be having this, something's wrong with me. And so it's just the system makes you feel guilty for this normal human response mm -hmm. that would actually help you get through it and over it and move on so you can be healthier. It's awful. And this is happening in so many places. And I think this is why conversations about trauma-informed care are so important is because these systems around PT are not the only ones that are subject to this. These unrealistic expectations of you not being a human, of you being like provider bot who just administers treatment is actually not what's going to help someone. You know, I, I did a little bit of consulting today with a friend of mine who's in the medical field, and this person has also had some trauma. And I said, hey, how did you tackle this with your physical therapist? And the person said, well, I kind of had a crush on my physical therapist. So, you know, and so I mean, like, it really, people will care for you, and you will care for people, and you will form real relationships with them, and you will feel because of it. We have pain, like, like we cry when someone is hurt or we mourn a death because we care, because we're alive. So being able to provide space for that is just, it's so core, but, but also so not built in because I think so many of us are like, I just have to be better and do better. I, I'm also in the caregiving profession. I take it personally when someone didn't get better and I want to do better and be better. But in a lot of ways, like modeling, being able to take care of myself and say, you know what, that's not mine. That's not who I am when I'm at my most healthy. I, I need to be okay being down for a little while and letting other people know around me, I need help. This isn't, this is a, this is not my problem, but I'm being made to feel the consequences of it. And it doesn't feel good. How do we protect me in this system. So being able to like communicate that, not from a sense of I'm not good enough, but from a sense of I deserve this I'm support. worthy. I'm worthy. Yeah. And doing that, yeah. yeah, it's so important because when we have that, we hold that, we model that and bring it into the systems and co-create systems that can have that feeling, then the patient care we give will be so much more rich and meaningful. Right. Well, one provider who takes care of themselves is going to have an impact on the whole system. And so it's the most courageous thing that we as providers could do is start to care for ourselves because we will actually change the system or we'll create a new one. If this one is not liable to change, I think that's where people can step out and say, okay, let's do it this other way. Let's try this way of being vulnerable. And I just can't imagine it not changing and reaching this mass. I think we'll need to reach a mass number. There, there will need to be so many providers living into this new space that eventually the system has to shift with it. But I do think we're in a very weird transition where I'm starting to suspect that some of the people that get into private practice mm -hmm. do so because of this component. Absolutely. And I don't think I knew that. I think a few years ago, I was like, they want money. And I saw myself as like, well, because I am willing to work in an insurance-based system, I really want all people to get better, which is a whole thing we can process about finances and worth and whatever. 
But now I'm seeing there's so much benefit to setting your own hours and to saying, I'm only going to see four patients a day because I need a break between every single patient or I'm going to see this many people per week and work within these type of hours. And I, I see that now as for people who made it out of that choice, very courageous, very brave to say, even though this system is different, this is what's going to work better. And it's unfortunate too, because I think our healthcare system then loses people who have that emotional space, who can practice at that level of integrity and vulnerability, but you're going to be pricing groups out of it. You are, mm-hmm. right? To make what you need to make to live is going to require that you charge more. And that doesn't sit right with me either. It goes back to that system change is, okay, I get it. Let's care for the providers. But... <laughs> you know, how are we going to lose people? Because sometimes the people in these trauma systems are some of the most burned out, traumatized, vicariously. Some of these systems have people who turn over all the time. That's not great for Mm -mm. patients either. So I'm hearing that it just has to happen just as if it's that simple. It has to happen at so many different levels. It has to happen at the personal level. Mm -hmm. I think it has to happen at the organizational level because we will have people who are new who don't know that this is what's happening to them. So as someone in a position of leadership, I need to be on the lookout. I need to normalize it. I need to have these conversations. And if we're able to change the system in our own little corner, let's change the system. Yeah. But we can't change it if nobody knows that it needs changing. And unfortunately, I think many of our colleagues don't know that it needs changing in this way. Some PTs, pelvic PTs, I never knew I needed to ask for this. Mm -hmm. And I think the hardest part around this is in order to know it needs to change, we need to be able to admit that there's something here. And in order to even get to that place, we need to feel these feelings. We need to just not numb out and be on Pinterest planning our vacation. We need to let ourselves cry that day and be like, let that emotion teach us. Because emotions are really what show us how to navigate the world. If you're afraid of that bear, good, great. That's what keeps you alive. If you feel good when you're in love, great. We have emotions to help us navigate our world, but taking the space and the courage to even feel them when the systems don't let us, I think is a whole nother issue that we're talking about. I think also what you say about as you're in a managerial position, being able to provide space for these conversations and for the new trainee who comes in and says, I don't believe I can do this anymore. Or I feel like I need to save this person. Just like letting that be okay. It's not a threat that this person is feeling these things. In fact, we can handle this and we will by taking care of ourselves, each and every one of us, and taking care of the system, making sure that it is a a system where there is enough space. Although I know that I've had so many conversations, my sister is a physical therapist, about about the pressures of insurance and having to literally see 18 patients a day back-to-back sort of thing and how you really can't even exhale. So there is this monolith of the money side of it that forces us into this, but it forces us into it because we consented we acquiesced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we thought that's how we could help. We could deconstruct this to go back to like, why does college cost so much? Like we also agreed to go into debt, to go into professions that are really burning us at both ends of the candle. And where's the reward? And some of us work in situations where we don't experience this as much. Some of us have a combination of resilience. And also, I believe some of us might not be as in touch with this aspect. Agreed. And unfortunately, women are naturally more in touch with their emotions. And so us displaying our emotions now looks like we can't handle the system, you know, and and that's just before we even get in there. It's, oh, God, you're crying. Of course, you can't see as many patients. And then I'm not valuable to the company because I can't see 18 patients and and they're not even realizing back to the blame thing, blame and and shaming. And and not everyone does that. We we do want to also be explicit. When we go into these shadows, it can sometimes feel like everything is a shadow. and, And we know that there are definitely light sources out there. This conversation hopefully being one of them. 
but we have to talk about both sides, right? The light, the dark, and all the colors in between. I love what you just did there. You notice there is something about identifying when you're having this vicarious trauma response or trauma response, because I do think in some ways, the moral injury of the work that we do is not just about vicarious trauma. It is about this conflict with ourselves and our desire to to actually help people. And then when we're in these roles and we're not able to because of the constraints of the system, I think, yeah, just even noticing, oh, we've gotten very doom and gloom and blame here. Just being able to shift to a different way of interacting with emotions and with the world is also really meaningful too. This kind of flexibility that we're practicing going into the feeling and then coming out again and being more allied with the part of ourself that feels strong and is able to connect with connect with our mission and our purpose and, and the integrity of our work. I think that's really meaningful too and shows the health of you all as providers to, to be able to be in these really difficult situations. It asks so much of us. That's a whole conversation. Yeah. And I really appreciate what you said about listening to someone share their vicarious trauma and thinking it's okay, because I've been self-studying burnout for a very long time because I was one of these highly feelings-based providers. Sometimes when I have conversations about burnout, I've wanted to know what is the way to fix burnout. I spent a while asking that. And recently when people have been asking me like, okay, what are your tips for burnout? I'm like, it's not, you can't give a tip for burnout. Like it's not like changing a tire. If you put your finger here, it'll untwist faster. (laughs) It's such a global overhaul of so many things. Oh my gosh. There's so many moving parts to this. So if it were as easy as doing any one thing, I really believe humanity is good enough to do that one thing. (laughs) (laughs) But this is going to require that many people do many things over and over. But we are in good company. Like I am in a... not a completely separate field, but I'm in the field of psychology where these conversations are happening. When I did my research before coming on to talk about these issues with you, I found all of this from actually the best practices for nursing. So these conversations are being had. It's right. just how, yeah, I think we just need to keep having them. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully with all of these conversations across all of these fields, we can all start to make the changes on the micro and then hopefully eventually on the macro level. And I think also part of it, when you said tips for burnout, it's, you know what, obviously we don't have the luxury of just, or I mean, some people do having enough money saved up to take that month or two off, but I have seen people come back new and healed people who say, no, I won't do that. I'm worth more after having taken some time off. Because when we're feeling like we've had everything taken from us, our energy, and we're like a burnt out husk of a human, it's really hard to feel that. Do I deserve this? No, I don't. And I'm just going to let my supervisor know that I'm leaving if I don't get this. Like (laughs) being able to be in connection with our own power and agency in systems based on our worth. I think it's important to to take care of ourselves. And now I'm looking at myself going, when's the last time I took a break? I don't know. Some days I don't even lunch. So I mean. (sighs) Brie, I feel rejuvenated even talking about this stuff. I feel like just bringing it out into light is so important. That was my my big takeaway from what we talked about today. And I was hoping maybe we could finish off with a little bit of a lightning round to cap things off at the end. What do you think? Awesome. This is something we like to do with our guests to get to know you a little bit more and end on a fun note. First question, what is your favorite drink at the moment? Kombucha mixed with lemonade. Ooh. Oh. I make it myself. Mm-hmm. Really? That's exciting. All right. No, not the kombucha. I'm oh. the two beverages. Oh, okay. I was like, wow. No, no, no. I'm not one of those people with the scoby. I tried to make <laughs> my own kombucha for a little bit and it did not turn out as expected. So it's I, hard. <laughs> I saw a scoby that looked like an alien once and I gave up. I was like, nope. <laughs> I've uh, never tried. So it's a, a skill. <laughs> All right. What is the best book you've read recently? Oh, I have to pass on this one because I've been studying for the licensing exam for three or four months and not, mm-hmm. I have not read a book recently. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Ask future me that. Okay. <laughs> Next time you come back on. What is the first thing that you do in a challenging situation? I probably try and talk myself down from the, the inner voice that says, you can't do this. I, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do it. And I'm just going to do it. 
And if I, yeah, but sometimes, I don't know, maybe that voice wins, though you can't do this voice wins. But I would say usually it's just, just accepting like this. I am in this situation. All right, here we go. <laughs> I like it. All right. If you weren't a psychologist, what would you do for work? I would probably be some sort of like somatic healer. I would work with people's mm. bodies to help them connect with kind of not so much the top down, like how thoughts and actions heal us, but how our bodies can heal ourselves. Excellent. And final question, how do you define a conscious clinician? Oh, I think I would define a conscious clinician as someone who is awake to their own experience and also is able to be attentive to themselves, their thoughts, their emotions, their knowledge base, such that they can be attentive to their patients and see really what's going on and what's needed and, and read that person as well. So both, it would be self and other. I love it. Thank you again. This has been a very healing conversation for me, at least. It was wonderful. Same here. I, I want to acknowledge you. Thank you for... There's something about psychologists that really makes it okay not to be okay. And thank you for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And I like that. I'm going to be taking that. It's okay to not be okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. That's my mission is to help people feel they're strong enough in the not being okay to withstand it and to merge on the other side. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at the conscious clinician and Facebook backslash the conscious clinician links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.